Welcome to Disarming Persuasion, the podcast for sales and business leadership professionals. My name is Dave Rosenberg, and I am the founder and principal at Locked On Leadership, a consulting firm with a mission to replace Thank God It's Friday with Thank God It's Monday. With me is my co-host, a man who can literally teach sales with one hand tied behind his back, Darren Cecil. Filling in for Darren, the amazing Ann Bonnie. And what are we going to talk about today? Well, Dave, we've got Nick Williams, the Director of Operations at Absolute Caulking and Waterproofing with us today out of Denver. Nick, how are you? I'm doing well. Today's a good day. It is a good day. Thanks so much for being here. So let's dive right in. What does disarming persuasion mean to you? So I thought about this. Um, to me, especially in this industry, honesty, vulnerability, and passion uh, really just can't be substituted. It can't be faked. It can't be uh, mimicked in any way. And when you approach a job of any kind, and uh, in the construction industry in particular, I found that being honest, being vulnerable, and having passion about what you do uh, really creates an environment in which people are ready to do the same thing. And so, um, to me, that's what that means. Wow, that's a good, short, succinct answer. You know, I think I can't remember who has said. Oh, yeah. Uh, I believe it was Dale Carnegie who said the, the little known secret to success is sincerity. And then as my brother would say, when you can fake that, you've got it made. <laughs> <laughs> Your brother must've been a successful guy. He did. Okay. He did. Okay. Uh, but um, yeah. So you and I were chatting last week, uh, getting ready for this. And one of the things that really sort of perked my ear up because we're talking about persuasion is that you um, when you joined the company, you kind of took on the mantle of safety officer. And I don't mean that in a, in a, as a, uh, uh, just a role, but actually as sort of a passion for you and something that you wanted to really build in. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit, tell us about sort of what things looked like before you took over and what were the challenges you had in, in moving the culture to a more safe culture? Well, honestly, Dave, Safety in construction uh, 13 years ago when I started this career um, was nothing to write home about in general. Um, there were a lot of issues uh, industry-wide, uh, almost to a company. And so, um, you know, the governmental agencies, you know, and regulatory commissions such as OSHA and things like that uh, coming in and forcing standards and things um, obviously had a positive impact on compliance but really what I figured out was it wasn't really ever about compliance. And what we started to do internally was figure out that it was a cultural shift that needed to happen. We needed to change fundamentally how we thought about the safety and health of each and every one of our workers on a daily basis. So we started from the top and went down. And by that, I mean, we had budget support. We, had, we made safety a black and red issue as well as a cultural issue. Uh, we had because I had those funds and financing in place to be able to make protocols and policies and systems, um, I was able to create teams, create groups of people. Um, I was able to, you know, fundamentally change the core values behind safety and then promote and uphold those with core value recognition, gift cards, you know, jackets for the guys when they were doing a heck of a job, telling them how great of a job they're doing with financial incentives, 
uh, things like that. And um, when you do, when you approach it from all sides, including the financial side, and you have the support of ownership to culturally impact everything, um, it really started to have a huge effect on how things changed internally at Absolute. And I started seeing a lot of that uh, in the industry as well. So, um, you know, all good ideas come from someone else's uh, uh, brain in the history of mankind, I think. And so we, we saw some really good things from our clients some really good things from some of our competitors and, um, thought, man, we, we definitely need to implement the best practices that we find around us. So, um, you know, took some great ideas from some people I really respect and, and tried to bolster that over the last decade or so. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, I often say we're not capable of thinking outside the box you know, the box is, is the sum total of our personal experiences. So the only way to think outside the box is to borrow from somebody else's experience. And so doing that is, is I think, brilliant. Um, yeah, I was going to ask, it sounds like, you know, you, you probably had some bottom line benefits to this, but have you seen turnover and engagement changes? Because I would think a safety focus is really an employee focus. So have you seen some differences yeah. there? Yeah, culturally, once you focus on health and safety for your employees, a lot of things change. Internally, we started implementing better insurance programs. We started implementing uh, better benefits for our employees, right? And then we started to see higher quality people come through our door. And then that started to have a huge amount of momentum moving forward as well. Because basically, you know, people in the industry heard our absolutes doing things a little differently. You know, they're, they're trying as hard as they can to really care about people from a health and safety perspective, give great benefits, et cetera. So we had people coming over from competitors that were interested in being a part of what we were doing here. So you give the best to get the best is how I approached it. And it ended up happening to be exactly the case. And now here we are, uh, 2021, our current metrics show that 80% of our company has been here for three years or more. And 65% of our company has been here for five years or more. So people come here and they want to stick around. So you attracted some better people. What about the folks who stuck around already? Did you see their improvement or their um, performance improve as well? Or a couple they- things happen. Yeah, yeah. When you have when you fundamentally change the culture of a company, you're going to have some naysayers for sure. Uh, you're going to have people who have been doing things the other way for a long enough time to support their own internal narrative and say, you know, I, I, I don't really think that we should be moving in this direction, spending the time, the money, the resources to uh, change and fundamentally transform things from a you know, positive standpoint in my mind for safety and health. For some people, it seemed like a waste of time. Uh, culturally, those people didn't fit and they moved themselves out of the company uh, and found you know, some, some place that fit themselves culturally. And when you stand by what you say and you put systems and protocols in place that you know, set up systems in such a way that people can't operate outside of them, uh, it does create a problem for people who are unwilling to accept that new culture. So we did lose some people, but then we also saw on the back end of that, we saw some people who said, wow, I never thought that we would care so much about this. And it sparked in some people a passion for, you know, super high quality control, super high focus on safety and health. We had some real champions inside the company say, this sounds awesome. I want to run with this. And uh, that was really cool to be able to see as well. So, so some of these folks actually stepped up their game, who maybe was a mediocre performer before and became one of your high performers after. Yeah, absolutely. 
I saw, I saw people become leaders in our company that for them, they never even saw themselves as potential leaders. And we saw drive and motivation come out as we started to change things. And um, as you know, the manage, management team, field ops manager, Robert Berger and Eddie Martinez, our quality control manager, the, the team of the three of us, you know, have the opportunity to promote from within. And we believe heavily in that, Dave. We have been promoting from within the entire history of this company. And all of our field level managers, as well as our uh, senior level management, uh, two of our three estimators um, are all have all been promoted from within. And so you see that cultural impact reinforced as people take that culture, take that safety, take that health and quality control, the things that they can really care about and latch onto and have some sincere passion, like you were talking about. Um, and they just move themselves up because they find themselves in a position where they genuinely care about what's going on and become leaders when they never thought they could be. And you want to talk about gratification, watching that happen has been amazing. Yeah. Well, it's kind of the step up or step out kind of thing. And that's as, as I talk about change management, one of the perseverance is the biggest challenge. And it's that dealing with that time between the change announcement and the actual like, okay, we're there, we've arrived, that that, that middle zone, that discomfort zone in the middle um, where you're dealing with this. So you say it started at the top. And I know one of the challenges, and especially in construction where you've got, you know, executive level leadership all the way down to street level supervisor leadership. Um, how did you align all that leadership to, so that everybody's kind of leading in the same direction? Uh, you have to have buy-in at every level. And so we have a safety committee that is, um, you know, it, represented by multiple levels, levels of leadership. And so that safety committee kind of steered things in the right way. Um, but I'll tell you this, honestly, I think that the number one thing is that our owner is a very sincere and honest person. And throughout this whole process has led by example, by telling people exactly um Know, what we are as a company and what we hope to accomplish and being very real nuts and bolts about how to approach those things. Um, if we didn't have that kind of leadership pushing us forward and I didn't feel supported to be able to do, you know, make the unilateral changes and dynamically shift everything that we were doing as a company, um, I don't think it would have happened. And um, I had that support and I had that narrative and that kind of has been our guiding light since the very beginning. Yeah, I've had so many organizations say, come in and fix my supervisors. And it's like, I'm not going to start there. Because like you said, if it doesn't start at the top, it's, you know, it's a wasted effort. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the top has to support the values. But what what I'm curious about, and I'm, I'm trying to be cautious here how I word this, because I don't want to imply anything negative about your owner. But right, it's the same person before and after. What? was holding him back presumably him i think you said i think you said that holding him back from making these changes before you started implementing it right some some catalyst had to occur that that he went yeah i i, I want to do this yes yeah, started as a one man band back in 1996 and as we grew and became a bigger company um at one time having as many as 49 employees uh things changed you know, and things change drastically and you don't know what you don't know. And, you know, as much as he did know, he didn't know a lot. Mm -hmm. And uh, he'll be the first one to tell you that and admit that. And having that sort of humility at the top is also very key uh, because you saw it here. You saw 
the leader of your company say, hey, listen, let's get the smartest people in the room and let's figure out what we need to do about this. If there's an issue, identify it and we will you know, propose a solution and we'll come up with that as a team. And as we grew and developed and started doing bigger and bigger projects, more sophisticated projects, and then began doing the most sophisticated projects in Denver and in the metro area, um, you know, we, we had to step up our game and up our ante. And, uh, you know, we saw the need for it and we went for it. Yeah, I, I think that humility you just described is so crucial in leadership because we, we can't know it all as human beings. Has this has this reflected at all on your clients? Um, are, are they seeing some of these changes? Is this a sale, essentially a selling point on the client end? A hundred percent. Yeah, it's uh, the kind of seriousness that we approach a project with, um, especially in the subcontracting world. Is um, you know, it's different. There's a few of our you know what I would call our uh, accurate and, and good competitors that. You know, if we if we lose a project to them, then, you know, we feel good about it. But there's not a lot of people that I feel play at the same level when it comes to the seriousness and the the long term approach that we have. I mean, we we aim to come to every challenge focused on the solution. And so in construction, that's huge. And, um, you know, having safety and health as a weakness, having quality control as a weakness, those just aren't options, especially when you start playing at the sophistication level that we do play at. I mean, these buildings, there's no room for error. There's no rooms for quality control errors or safety and health errors. I mean, we need to be operating, spinning like a top at all times. And, um, you know, having the resources and the system set up, the training, the education, everything that we have, all the resources behind that, um, you know, got us to that level. And then, like you said, I mean, it becomes word of mouth, you know, that, Hey, these guys really knocked it out of the park on the last one, right? Internally at different clients, but also within the industry, um, getting involved in all the associations and getting to sell yourself, getting to talk about passionately about how we care about what we do. Um, honestly, it doesn't ever seem like a sales tactic, but I know that it has to do only positive things when it comes to uh, doing new business with people. Well, I mean, like attracts like, so your mindset as a company um, will attract uh, generals who have a similar mindset and which will attract uh, ultimately, you know, project owners who have a similar mindset, which is, you know, let's do it once right, which in the construction industry is, is absolute right. I mean, measure twice, cut once. There's all, how many sayings are there, which really are focused on that same thing. I, I Dave, start- you bring up a really good point because we felt as we started to develop these systems and become better at what we did, we felt more empowered to decline work from clients that we felt didn't fit our standard. Mm-hmm. And that's what a, what a flip and a switch, like you were saying, I mean, you understand the contracting world. And so to be able to be in a position to say to yourself, no, I don't, I don't think that we should do business with these people because they're not up to this standard. Um, it, it get, not only is it empowering, but it reinforces the narrative that we do things one way and that's the right way. Yeah. And it's funny. Ann and I talk about this in our respective businesses, you know, uh, you know, we both, both doing, you know, leadership coaching and training and it's about tracking the right client who's already in a position mentally, emotionally to say, yeah, I want to take my game to the next level. Not somebody who's you know, blaming others for their, 
lax, but saying, turning internal and say, how do I improve me? Because when I improve mm-hmm. me, then I set the standard for everybody else around me. So yeah, and, and it works across the board in any industry in every industry. Um, I, I wanted to go back to something you said, you, know, you talked about promoting from within and that's one of my favorite uh, things to do uh, because these are people already inculcated into your culture how do you, what do you do to ensure that when you promote somebody that they're actually ready to step into the position and don't have to step up to the position? We always interview for open positions, even internally, right? So we have an interview, we set expectations, we make sure somebody understands exactly what they're stepping into. Because the last thing I would want to do is set up somebody for failure, um, you know, stepping into something they're not ready for as far as the stress, anxiety, things like that, that come along with the increased pay rate, right? Um when you have more responsibilities, you have more to deal with. And I make that very clear to these guys so that they can understand that that's what's going to happen. Um, if they're not ready for it, then we just don't make the move. Um, if they are ready for it, then uh, we don't hesitate. And then we try to give them the tools to succeed after that. We have a pretty advanced training program that we utilize one of our third-party uh, coaching companies for. And they, they basically go through a two-year program that teaches them everything from uh, you know, stress management to scheduling to production and efficiency reporting uh, helps them understand the, their role in the much bigger picture uh, of the, you know, the $350 million project that might be going on, right? But that day, what can they do to impact positively what happens? So, you know, they, they're trained how to coach others. They're trained how to uh, understand uh, what to do and how to properly negotiate contracts and in and, and situations like that with uh, with our clients. So, we try to, you know, ultimately create leaders uh, that show the drive and motivation. Because, uh, like I said, Dave, when you you made a great point about promoting from within, and they're inculcated with the culture. But I've also always said that once you have a known value and you know you have somebody with a good attitude, you can teach anybody that has a good attitude anything. Mm-hmm. But it is almost impossible to teach someone with a bad attitude mm-hmm. how to do anything new, and so. You know, we, we definitely place a lot of value on positive attitude, drive, motivation. Those types of things are impossible to foster and they have to happen organically. And once you identify somebody who's a good candidate for leadership and they have a good attitude, man, I've just seen it, you know, it, the, the sky's the limit for sure. Sounds like this is such a fun place to work. You know, I, I've been in workplaces where everybody has that passion. They have that pride. They have that respect for each other and that positive mindset. Um, you know, as I think about construction and a culture of safety, I, I think about the book, um, How NASA Builds Teams, and they talk about how the importance of everybody being able to say, I see a problem and have no you know, sort of fear of retribution. And it seems like that would be a really important thing at your, at your organization as well. Is that something as you were working on this culture that you were sort of creating, how do we make it safe for, for everybody to speak up? Is that, is that something you worked on as well? And you bring, you bring up a, an insanely good point. <laughs> we, I've I think been saying probably, that way. <laughs> <laughs> about six years ago, I think we identified a huge need for a shift in our culture. And so as we continue to develop, I mean, we're always changing, we're always shifting, we're always learning, right? And we saw that there was a huge need for a shift in the language surrounding lessons learned, right? So people needed to more, they needed to feel more free to fail. 
and admit that they failed. Because when you admit that you fail, you can identify the problem and then wholeheartedly and unequivocally say, all right, this is what happened. And then we as a team can say, all right, here's how we're going to solve that. And then we're going to catalog this, right, as a lesson learned and hopefully never replicate this. But if you don't have that open honesty, you don't, and everyone's too afraid to admit failure, then you're not going to have the opportunity to learn that lesson and then implicate us or, you know, create a system that will, you know, stop the replication of that in the future. So to me, you got to have that environment where everyone can say, I messed up, I did this, this happened, whatever it was, and let's talk about it. So and you and you I don't, about I don't how- know why we didn't have that before, honestly, but right. when you when you realize it, you, you, you got to do something about it. Well, and it takes vulnerability, just like you said, it takes saying, hey, I screwed something up or, hey, I think, you know, Dave screwed something up. And it's not like, hey, let's punish Dave, but it's let's figure this out. Uh, Dave, you and I have talked about this before on on the podcast. Absolutely. You know, it's funny uh, when I was flying for the Navy one of the most important evolutions we had was the debrief. Uh, different branches have different names for it. Uh, after action review is typically what the uh, Na- uh, Army or the uh, Marine Corps call it. I- I'm not sure what the Air Force, they pro- I think they use debrief like we do. Um, you debrief a mission. And one of the things they teach at uh, Naval Fighter Weapons School, Top Gun, is how to debrief to keep people's egos out of it. And I'm curious if you have a formal uh, AAR process. So for one of the things they taught us, for example, is to keep it third person. In other words, if the four of us, or three of us, sorry, I looked at my own picture in the video here and I counted myself twice. <laughs> That's actually my ego speaking because me and my ego. <laughs> I told you not to bring him, Dave. Yeah, he goes with me everywhere I go. Um, but if the three of us had just finished a mission and, and we're now talking about it afterwards, and let's just say it was a training evolution where Anne was flying the, the aggressor and uh, you and I, Nick, were, were flying you know, the fighters, as was the term, and uh, Anne made a bad move, right? It wouldn't be and screwed up and she turned left in front of me and I was able to get the shot, right? Because now, Aunt, no, I didn't, right? The ego gets in the way. So it was the bogey. That's how we would refer to the aggressor. The bogey did this, or the wingman did this, or the lead, what I've talked about, if I was the lead, did this, right? And it was trying to keep egos out of it. I, I did an article, an interview for um, fire chiefs. It was a similar thing where they do their after action reviews, but they want to, they either becomes a blame game right? They go, you screwed up or it becomes a love fest where they won't talk about the things that went wrong. So what do you do as a company to make sure that you do get to see these learning points? We do have a formal system in which we track the production on each and every project, each and every scope, et cetera. And when we have failures, uh, we catalog them. I mean, we, we got to keep track of those things. Um, I think to your point about, you know, creating a Creating a, a, an ego-free space is difficult, especially in construction. Dave, you told me about your contracting background, and man, there's a lot of ego out there. Mm-hmm. And um, I think there's two things. To, to answer your question, it would be a two-prong. One, lead by example. When you mess up as a manager, say it out loud and say it often, um, because then it becomes more okay. People understand, oh, you know, my the leader of my, you know, uh, operations department is telling me that he messed up, but that we're going to fix it. 
and we're going to come up with a plan, right? And uh, when they see you admit mistakes and not try to pass blame or anything like that, I think it takes the ego out of it in that way. And then number two, we have a mantra in our operations department. We talk about it quite often in our operations meetings, our superintendent meetings, et cetera. And that's, is it more important to you that it was done right or that you're right? Because if it's more important to you that you're right, I don't even want to talk to you anymore. Uh, to me, it's, it's always, you got to focus on the solution. You got to focus on the fact that we need to do things the right way. And I'm not really that concerned about whether or not you think you're right. Uh, so we try to take the ego out of it by, you know, making sure that we're approaching each and every decision with that sort of, uh, framework in mind. Yeah, no, I think you nailed it at my accountability Academy. That's the three day, uh, retreat I do where we work on leadership issues. One of the things I have there is that. Uh, failures belong to the leader and success belongs to the team because if the team doesn't do something right it's 100% leadership's responsibility because that's our job as leaders is to ensure it happens but if everything goes right it's because the team did it right right and so they they deserve this success Yeah. yeah that's fantastic yeah I love that I think most of my coaching relationships are based on that I you know I coach I've been coaching a few of the superintendents for years now and then my field level managers as well. And we've been talking a lot about that, uh, just creating that environment where, you know, you can, when your team is operating at top level and everything's working and spinning like a top, uh, you're doing something right. But of course the team is doing everything right. And so if the team hasn't been set up to succeed and you failed to get them the right tools, resources, materials, et cetera. And uh, you made a decision that negatively impacted 10 people or, you know, you know how it works. Mm-hmm. Um, that's up to you. <laughs> that's up to you to fix. That's up to you to understand. That's up to you to take the blame for. And uh, you better do it quick <laughs> before anybody else decides to do it for you. Yeah. And it's, and it's interesting as I've heard you kind of talking about the culture and, and you talked a little bit about some of the extrinsic rewards that you're offering. You know, you, you talked about an incentive or a gift card or something like that, but most everything that you've been operating on to reward our teams, the team for doing a great job was all of this intrinsic pride and, and, you know, empowerment and all of that stuff. Can you talk a little bit about that and sort of the, the balance you've seen between that extrinsic, you know, rewards and bonuses and all that versus that intrinsic thing, because that intrinsic seems to be so much more powerful for you. There's a question on every one of our uh, interview sheets um, that basically is intended to get to that route right there that you bring up in. And that's to find out someone's motivation currency. You know, uh, I think I asked them, uh, what motivates you to do a good job and want to prove that you can do a good job? And there's really four answers. Uh, There's only ever four answers. Family is a huge one. Pride, recognition, and money. Money is almost always last for everybody. Uh, But the pride is a huge factor, especially in construction. People that work with their fans, uh, their hands, pride is extremely important. I did this. I was able to accomplish this. Um, And then for recognition purposes, um, you know, we do, we do want to make sure that everybody you know, the core value recognition that we do and we do in front of the whole company at our all hands meetings, because it's about that to them. You know, we give them a gift card. It's a token of our appreciation, but the piece of the puzzle that's really important is recognizing them in front of all their peers as top performers and saying, thank you for doing this. 
This was right in line with our core value of excellence. This was right in line with our core value of teamwork. And here's why that's important. And here's why that means something to us. So that does two things, right? You get the recognition and the pride from the employee, but you also get everybody else seeing, all right, if I want that, here's how I need to perform. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. I need to emphasize what you just said for our listeners here, because you just, you can't see my eyes are tearing. My eyes are tearing hearing you say this because, and I wrote about this in my book, the reinforcement of your core values is probably one of the top two things as leaders we need to do. I I think it's number two. Number one is to walk the walk ourselves, right? We need to model the behaviors and values that we profess to have, right? We have to, which is my definition of character and integrity, right? Being, Being within yourself. But then not just modeling them, which is a form of conversation, actually, and Ann and I talked about this in our last podcast, we talked about non, nonverbal communication, but reinforcing them by when you recognize people, don't just say, Nick, you did a great job, but emphasizing the value that, because that's what made it a good job, is that you reinforce the values. Observational learning kicks in, which is you know psychologically what happens, everyone goes, ah, if I want that recognition, I need to I, I need to demonstrate this value and this value, whatever the values are. And if your team, and I suspect if I had one, any one of your team members right now, I could probably ask them to name your core values and they could probably rattle them off their head. Yeah, and that was that was really important to us. And honestly, this came from you know our, our business coaches and consultants that we've been had long, long relationships with now for about a decade. You know, we bought in fully with what they were telling us and the way that they phrased it was to promote and uphold your core values. You have to, otherwise your core values are just uh, you know, words on a page. Um, if they become living, breathing uh, concepts that everyone abides by, then there's not much else you need to do because you get people operating at a point where they understand exactly what the guiding light is and they can just work towards that. You know, if they're going to make a decision, any decision, you know, the hundreds of decisions we all have to make in a business day, is that in line with our core values? Is that in line with our principles? And if it is, it's the right decision. So how do you hire people who share those values? What is it you go through in a hiring process to make sure that you're not hiring somebody who has different or conflicting values? Um, yeah, I do show our mission, vision, and core values. You can see it right behind me. We, we have this uh, hanging up in every single one of our offices and rooms in our office. It's on the back of our business cards. It's our guiding light, man. It's, uh, it's what we do. So I show them this. I show them this list of core values. And I say, this is how we do things here. This is, what, this is how we, you know, we're helped to make our decisions. Take a look at this and tell me the top one or two that key in for you as one of your own personal core values. And inevitably, I get really cool stories from people. Wow, like safety is so important to me. I see this safety core value here. Let me tell you a story about where I used to work. And, you know, we, we weren't taking things so seriously. And, I, you know, I spoke up. I spoke truth to power to management. And, you know, we got better safety equipment or something like that, right? And you hear somebody tell that story and then you key in on what they're passionate about. And then they understand that we also are, right? And then we, from that point, we build an understanding of shared core values. Conversely, if they can't do that, then they're probably not going to be a good fit. And does that happen? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've actually had to stop a couple interviews short um, simply because, you know, somebody came in with a pretty poor attitude or 
um, you know, they didn't, they, they don't really feel too strongly about uh, needing core values and you know, voice to that as much said, well, that's fine. That there's probably a different place for you to go head over and work, you know, because I don't ever want to be the person that makes a decision to hire that person, send them over to one of my field managers and then say, here, deal with this person. Um, I just, I feel like that's not in line with our core values at all. Uh, because, uh, you know, I want to be able to set people up for success a hundred percent of the time. And, uh, I know how we do things. We don't make, uh, you know, we don't make uh, excuses for people and we don't, uh, we don't make uh, concessions. And so, um, I think that, uh, you know, and I, I was supported in doing that. We interview as a team, our QC manager and our field ops manager, and I all interview every single employee that comes in for operations. And, uh, all three of us felt really strongly that, you know, those, those few instances that that happened, uh, that was time to cut that short. Mm. It's, it's such an important, gosh, now I can't remember my question. Um, oh, it takes so much courage to make these difficult decisions. You know I mean? Because I've heard so many times in leadership, people saying, oh, I inherited it from them and their performance evaluations over the last six years were all positive and they get to me and they're terrible. And I talk to their old boss and they're like, oh yeah, they were always like that. And it's this, this sort of cowardly, quote unquote, leadership that people are engaging in. And in order to make the tough decisions that you're making and hold to these values and, and you know, this culture of safety, it takes a lot of courage. How have you, have you sort of bolstered that within your team? I think when you form honest and real relationships with people, it's not, it doesn't take as much courage. It's really more about caring uh, at that point. And we have one-on-one coaching relationships for everybody. So, you know, each superintendent coaches their employees on a bi-monthly basis. So you're not having an annual discussion. I mean, we do that. We do annual, you know, uh, performance reviews and things like that, but it's based on a year of data. It's based on a year of performance. Uh, those coaching sessions intermittently, you know, in between those annual reviews, uh, bring up great things that an employee is doing, right? Coaching is always, you know, about recognizing the things that they're performing at a high level, but also, Hey, here's how we as a team could approach something that I've identified as maybe a gap or a weakness. And what can I do as a manager to support you? You know, I need you to do a better job doing X, Y, Z. What can I do to be there for you? Am I getting in your way that I set up a system that's, you know, completely making it impossible for you to succeed? Um, let's work together, right? When you have that kind of relationship and it's one-on-one and you can continue to have those kinds of discussions, then really performance just becomes about working together as a team and less about, you know, analysis. And it also provides the opportunity to be super honest because you don't, like you just said, Ann, you could just pencil with those things all week long or all year long and then end up with an employee that has no idea that they're doing anything that needs improvement. Because like you said, you don't have the courage to speak up and say, I think I need you to do a little bit better. Uh, when you're able to like personally know somebody and honestly and passionately speak to them about, you know, just improving performance, I think it changes the narrative a little bit. Well, and it makes it so much easier. Like you said, it's that ongoing relationship rather than this transactional conversation. You know, mm-hmm. we, we, we have this, the, the performance evaluation or telling them they need to improve something is just another part of the conversation rather than some big, you know, big thing that it becomes a big problem. 
So yeah, I, I want I want the performance evaluation to be the fifth or sixth time that they've heard us talk about something that you know we've potentially needed improvement on and seen improvement on continually over the year. Um, you don't want a performance eval to be an annual, you know, hey, Surprise. I need you, yeah, I need you to improve A, B, C, and if you don't, you're not going to stay here. Uh, that would just create an environment that I I would feel not comfortable working in, and I don't want to create that for anybody. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, you definitely that that part of the performance analysis should be. You, you still need work, but I've seen you come so far. Continue, mm-hmm. keep, keep doing it. You, you're almost there. Not a not a shock. You know, you hit on something um, or, or mentioned something, and I, I just I just want to circle back. And you know, you talked about where's that courage come from? Where Anne asked that, and you said it's, it's really not courage; it's caring, mm-hmm. and. It just brings me in mind of Lao Tzu, the founder of Taoism, who once uh, said, being cared deeply, being cared about deeply by others gives us strength, but caring deeply about others gives us courage. And that's what you've discovered, you know, that, that it, it, and it's, if you read interviews with recipients of any Medal of Valor, you know, uh, Congressional Medal of Honor, Silver Star, Bronze Star, you know, talk about what they did, which is put themselves in danger for their team and ask them why they did it. It's never for the accolades. It's never because I wanted, I wanted to be here. It's always because, hey, I was in the position where I can help my team. And it was all about my team. And putting myself at risk wasn't even a thought. It was any one of them, if they were standing where I was standing, would have done the same thing for me. And I care about them. And that's that's where it comes from. Listen, that's can- so that's <laughs> that's so great. I love that quote. Um, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna look that up and print that out and put it on my wall. Yeah, it's 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 absolutely. Uh, I mean, ancient wisdoms they're they're around for a reason, right? When you you think about um, yeah, Sun Tzu and the art of war, and I know it's the art of war, but the brilliance that they still teach, you know, two thousand whatever years later, you know, in, in war colleges. Um, and it's, by the way, a great business manual as well. Um, and, and so it's, it's, it's just great philosophies in, in general. We could probably go on for hours. I know you've got a, a company to run uh, and projects to get done. Just a couple things you, going on. Yeah. <laughs> I, I want to give you a chance to, is there any closing remarks you'd like to share with our listeners? You've left so many platinum nuggets they're not even gold the, the platinum nuggets out there uh, you've really set the example of how to do things right and I, by the way i love the fact that you have coaches um all great performers have coaches I, I i share with people all the time if you're a baseball fan you know you look at cal ripken jr or tony Gwynn, you know hall of fame hitters guarantee at the end of their career they still had batting coaches Right. Well, Dave, you brought that up. And I mean, honestly, I'll, I'll close with this. I think one of the best opportunities and the, the, the greatest things that we get to do as business leaders is the opportunity to see people grow and to coach people uh, through that process. And getting to do that um, just creates such an immense amount of pleasure in my life. I think uh, creating a company uh, culture in which People are set up to succeed, watching them succeed, watching people uh, move forward. Honestly, throughout the years, Dave, it's become mostly about listening to others, 
learning from others and taking concepts and key concepts that other people have seen successful and saying, you know what, why not try that here? And more often than not, it's worked out positively. And so taking the, the, the wisdom, the concepts from the people who have come before us and have learned all the hard lessons before us, man, uh, just infinitely more valuable. And so um, coaching has, is a huge part of that. And, um, you know, getting the opportunity as uh, all of our managers get to do to impart some of that knowledge, but also learn in that coaching relationship from that employee. Because every time you have a coaching relationship, it's symbiotic and you learn just as much as you get to teach. Um, and it truly provides a, an immense amount of gratitude uh, from me to my employees for getting to do that every day. Yeah, and once again, you drop another platinum nugget on us. So I, I appreciate that. Um, and the, the secret to real joy and happiness, you actually threw that in there. Um, which is just caring about others and giving to others and being externally focused. So thank you for that last, last word, Nick, it's been a huge, huge pleasure. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks. I appreciate you guys having me on. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for being here. And any, any last words? I have no more. I can't add anything. That was fantastic. Thanks so much, Nick. All right. We will uh, talk to you next time. That concludes another episode of Disarming Persuasion. My name's Dave Rosenberg. And this is Darren Cecil. Visit our websites at LockedOnLeadership.com or DarrenCecil.com. Follow us on social media. You can find the links in the show notes. Remember, if they fail to make a decision, you fail to disarm them.